How many of you have ever um, stumbled into a moment that you realized, like, this moment could change your life, okay, and you decided just to go for it, okay? Maybe uh, like wearing a flamingo shirt on a Sunday morning, right? Like, maybe it was just you getting super courageous and like, this is the thing that's got to happen no matter what. Um, I was thinking about that. Over this past week, I've actually been sitting on this message for a few weeks now, thinking about what does it mean when you come across and you stumble into a moment that is so big that if you were able to find the courage to go forward, everything could change. And I was thinking, when was the first time I really interacted with that reality? And I realized it was fifth grade. Um, I had just transitioned from private Christian school uh, to public school. Big move. And I was quite innocent and naive in so many ways. And I remember uh, going to the fifth grade. It was fifth to eighth grade, but the fifth graders were on one side of the building, kind of connected to the sixth graders, and then like seventh and eighth graders kind of like rule the roost kind of thing, right? And so I remember getting there and kind of like surveying what was going on, and I realized that I wanted to go for it and ask out the prettiest girl in school, all right? Now, here's the thing. Uh, Her name was Lisa, and Lisa Howell uh, was older than me in the sixth grade, okay? So, like, upperclassmen, and she was way out of my league. But I had no clue. I just knew that, like, I had to go for it. I guess I thought I was in a league of my own. I'm not really sure exactly. My wife would tell you I still kind of tend to go that way sometimes. But the idea is that I decided, like, I'm just going to go for this. And so, you know how it goes in fifth grade. Like, you work up the courage, you think through the wording, and you simply write on a piece of paper, um, I like you, do you like me? And then you put what? Yes or no. Okay, you know how this goes, right? And so I just put all my time and energy into this letter, crafted it just right, folded it up 20 times, and then somehow, like, got it to her. I don't know if I threw it at her. Like, that's, kind of, that's something I think you do. But, like, I don't know if I threw it at her or, like, somehow got it to her. But it was like Fort Knox to get to Lisa Howell, right? So all that to say, in my naivety, I just kind of went for it. Now, here's what I wasn't considering, though. Um, I was new, okay? Um, I was rocking um, a girl's name as a guy, all right, which in like, let me tell you something, the scariest people in the world, it's like, it's like, okay, it's like North Korea, Al-Qaeda, and middle schoolers, right? Like, those are the people you have to avoid in life in general, because they will mess your life up if you're not careful. You just have to be careful with it. You have to kind of, you have to slow your roll. So I remember, though, like, just trying to go for it, and somehow she got the letter, and, but I didn't take this into account. She had like, you know, she, not only was she the prettiest girl in school, she was dating the cutest guy in school, all right? And um, also the cutest guy in school had the meanest bodyguard in school, all right? So I just really wasn't thinking about this. Stumbled into it, all that to say it didn't work out for me, okay? That's the, that's the short story to this long explanation. And what I learned was a lesson. It was a narrative that was kind of compounded into my life. And that is, you better not go for it, because if you do, you'll be crushed. Don't, don't go for it, because if you go for Lisa Howell, okay, you will be crushed. It will not work out for you. Now, when we consider that, 
and we look at this context, we are dealing with the people who have learned that lesson. We have a disinherited people living in a subjected rule, right, indentured servitude in many ways to an empire that has everybody in the known world under their thumb. They, this empire would lead with peace in Rome, but yeah, it was only peaceful in Rome if you were a conquered person and you gave into it. And then you have these people, these Hebrew Jewish people, who were told that they were meant to go for it in life. They had a, a God who appeared out of nowhere while they were in slavery thousands of years before, and this God sparked hope in them and then sent them out, rescued them, saved them, and this was their narrative, and yet time and time again they would be pushed down and subjected. They were a people who had tried and failed and learned to accept that nothing really is worth going for until Jesus showed up. And then we have this person of Jesus who shows up in the midst of this whole world, and he starts giving them hope. He starts sparking something in them. They kept waiting time and again for a Messiah to show up one day, and here he comes rolling into town, talking in these creative, imaginative ways about what the world could look like if you're just willing to go for it. If you weren't willing to kind of stand on the sidelines, if you're willing to try to give it another shot and try to walk through that shame. And so this morning, I want us to look at a couple of parables that one is about finding treasure, it's a treasure trove, and the other is about this fine pearl. So in the spirit of these parables, I would say these are two sides to one coin, right? And I want us to look at two sides to one coin. And what's been so great about this series of parables is a parable is meant to heighten the imagination. It's meant to inspire us to consider what this world could look like. That's what you've been hearing the last few weeks. And one of the best ways to do that is through questions. So I'm going to give us two questions this morning that will be the basis of what we're trying to think about and talk about. You can write them down or snap the screen if you want. Here are the questions. What do you do when you stumble across something worth more than everything you have, and what will it require from you to go after what you don't possess but know you must have? Just consider those two questions for a second. What do you do when you stumble across something worth more than everything you have, and what will it, what will it require from you to go after what you don't possess but know you must have? Here's the first side of the coin, this side of treasure that is stumbled across. Now, before we just look at that parable, let's just consider something. Jesus is teaching a series of parables to people who are listening, these great crowds, about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as it's talked about in Matthew, is the reign of God here and now through the Messiah. That's what the kingdom of God is, that when you have a rightful and benevolent king is a benevolent world. If you can get the right king in place, the world was meant to be overseen by a benevolent, a benevolent ruler. And so Jesus shows up and he's using parables to help people awaken and wake up, inspire what it could look like if they were willing to live in God's kingdom. And all of his parables, all the parables are about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, all of them. They're all trying to bring a, a different side to this. So the question is, why would he use so many parables? Well, the, the answer is simple. 
Um, for an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person, it was just assumed and understood that it took many looks at one thing to try to fully grasp what it could be saying. And it all started with the Torah. The Torah was God's words into this world. Now, Jesus shows up as God fleshed out in these words to bring life to those words. So, the Torah, though, was meant to be something that is looked at. Listen, if we dwindle down the Torah, and those are just the first five books of the Old Testament, to simply do's and don'ts, you'll miss it. You give one look at it, you're like, I got it, good. And then I don't like it, so let me move on from it. But for an ancient Near Eastern person, they believed that there were 70 faces to the Torah. 70 faces. That you had to turn it 70 different times to get all that it had to say for it to fully inspire you. And they got this from a tradition um, that where it's, it's, it's considered midrash, commentary, where you talk about something over and over again, and there's a hermeneutic to it. And in the Bemidbar Rabbah, it says, there are 70 faces to the Torah. Turn it round and round, for everything is in it. Now, Jesus is coming, like I said, from God to give a fleshed-out Torah. And so, this is no different in his attempts to talk through God's words and what they look like in a world actualized. Israel had done its best attempt to live it out, and Jesus shows up and says, let me be really clear with you. This is what it's going to take. This kingdom of God is what we're always after, but we're going to have to like keep turning it and turning it for you to fully realize. So that's the setting, all these parables. And so after teaching all these parables, he takes a break. I love it. Actually, in verse 36, if you look, it says, then he left the crowds and went into the house. I love the humanity of that verse. Like he was tired and he went into the house. Like Jesus needed breaks. I get a picture of Jesus like lounging, little vino maybe, right? Um, which means grape juice, but little vino, right? And he's just like relaxing and he's wanting to take a break. And all of a sudden his disciples come to him and they're having a hard time understanding all these different parables. Now, parables would really stretch the imagination, it wasn't just cut and dry. Parables were meant for you to wrestle with something. So they were wrestling and wrestling here, all these parables. So they come to him and they're like, explain this last parable about how that there's a field and that there's wheat in it, but there are also weeds in it. But like, you need to like just let them grow together and then one day they'll be separated. And, and so they're going and they're trying to wrestle with it. And so Jesus explains, but then Jesus gives them like their own personal parables, like behind the scenes insider parables that they as followers of him explicitly are going to need in this world. And the first that he gives is here in verse 44. Let's read it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the quote, in a field, quote, was used actually earlier in the passage. So Jesus is purposely connecting dots here. He's trying to like build off of other images, and in that earlier image, it was someone was working the field, working the field. 
And so it just kind of stands to reason, commentators would agree on this, that what Jesus is, is doing is actually now talking about the person working in the field for this master. More than likely, it was someone who was um, an indentured slave to a master, and they were kind of doing the work in the field, but then they come across something, a treasure trove, like something that was amazing, something that was so big, so valuable, and had the potential to change their reality and their life that an underprivileged person came across a very privileged moment. And if they kind of worked it right, they might be able to have their whole life be changed. Interesting. Now again, Jesus actually wants us to read between the lines. So let me kind of read a couple of different things here that might help us with that from a, uh, a theologian named John Nolan. Just listen to this. If the finder had found the treasure, then there was a really even if small chance that someone else might stumble upon it. We can only imagine how the treasure was found. Perhaps erosion had exposed what had previously been hidden. The finder does not take the treasure. It may be too large to be readily movable. But the more likely, the owner of the field might make a claim once the story of the finding of the treasure got out. Rather than attempting to gain immediate possession of the treasure, the finder makes sure that the treasure is invincible to other visitors of the site. He restores it to its original hidden state. Now again, we can assume that this person in the field is more than likely a slave of this master. And they realize that they start talking about this right now, that they may never get it. So it turns now into like an Ocean's Eleven ancient Near Eastern heist, right? It's like Daniel Ocean is on the move, all right? So he's got to like work all the angles to like make this happen. Because he found something, he found something, but then it says, and he covered it up. Now, we read this as a 21st century, for the most part, privileged people with our morals and aptitude in check, and we read that and we go, I'm not so sure that this is a really good moral approach to how to deal with something. Like, the person owned the field, they own the field, so therefore that belongs to them. So here's what I want to do. I want to try to divide us in the room and get you, like, to question the other person that's sitting beside you. So here's what's going to happen. Here's the question. The question is, Simply, what would you do in this moment? And here are your two options. There is no C, no such thing as C. Listen to me, only A and B, all right? Here's A, only A, here you go. Go tell the master and assume the best of his humanity will come out, okay? Enneagram one's in the room, there you go. That's your answer already, all right? Two, here's your second, go get yours. <laughs> All right, I just want you to take a second, turn to the person beside you, and let them know which decision you would make. Be honest, be honest, which decision would you make? All right, that's enough. Let me ask you, raise your, be honest, be honest, raise your hand if you chose A. Thank you. 
thank you for your honesty. You're wrong, but thank you for your honesty. Okay? Joking. How many, how many chose B? Go get yours. Enneagram 8, show up. Here we go. All right. <laughs> go get it. All right. So here's, here's, here's why I'm, I'm trying to get us to consider this. Like, it's meant to spark that there are these moments that we stumble into. These moments that could change your whole reality if you're just willing to go for it. And it poses us a question, what are you going to do? What will you do at that moment? Will you try to go for it? I'm going to put it on the screen. John Nolan, he follows up with some really interesting things here. It says, the finder may not yet have possession of the treasure, but is galvanized into action by the joy of the prospect of possession. What will secure uncontested ownership of the treasure trove? Ownership of the field. But for this person, ownership of the field does not come easily. It involves a total reordering of priorities, since to achieve ownership of the field, must first, he must first liquidate all of his assets or her assets. Everything must be focused on the single goal of owning the field in which the treasures be found. Nothing less will suffice. Three things I think is really interesting that, that Nolan brings out that happens with this person as we were willing to imagine it. One, the treasure that he comes across galvanizes him. It galvanizes him. Like it goes to his core. His, his body feels heavy. It's like all of a sudden there's purpose and meaning to what I'm doing. I may be a servant out in the field, but like this right here could bring complete and total meaning where, the, where me being a servant can't. Like something in our humanity tells us like there's got to be more. There's got to be more out there, but we're scared to recognize it or admit it because there are narratives that follow us throughout our life that tell us, don't do it, don't go for it. But look, he lets this moment galvanize him. And when something galvanizes you, then you must start reordering your priorities. You have to start reordering your priorities. If something is that significant, that potential of a life change, you have to start now reshifting things. The priorities of your life have to change. If not, then something hasn't galvanized you. And then, after it's galvanized you, and after you've been willing to reprioritize your life, reorder things, now there's the big step. You have to leverage everything. He liquidates what he owns to get the thing that he doesn't. And Jesus says, this is the kingdom of heaven. That when the kingdom of heaven comes into our lives, it galvanizes us. It does something to us. It washes over us. It messes with us. Listen, if our faith is simply boiled down to, like, fire insurance, get out of this perfidy of a world, get to heaven, and that's how I'm going to get mine, that's not very galvanizing. And I can show evidence of a lot of people, every person not in this room who would say it's not worth reordering their life around it, much less leveraging everything they have. So we have to consider something. Maybe our gospel gets a little bit too narrow sometimes. The cross is important, but the cross is not why Jesus showed up. It's a part of why he showed up. 
And if we drill it down just simply to that, we'll end up with an empty cloak of a life that's not very inspiring. It's just a bunch of words that we can push to the side. So the kingdom of heaven is meant to be God's reign in this world, how it could look different for a human being to reimagine their purpose and inspire others. The kingdom of heaven. And you know it when you see it because it moves you within. And it makes you have to reconsider everything in life. And now you've got to liquidate what you got because you don't fully have that, but you've got to have it. It's a beautiful, powerful message. It's something that many times I think we lose out on. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are an unprivileged people living in a, subversive, in a, in a subservient world, and you have, as underprivileged people, a privileged moment. What will you do with it? So even in the midst of all, all that, like, there's this message for those who are disinherited. Those who grow up on the wrong side of the tracks, the wrong color of skin, in the wrong setting of the world, which none of those things were wrong, obviously, but that's the narrative that's been communicated to people time and time again. And it says even you, because the Bible's written first and foremost for disinherited people, even you have a chance to rise up. Even you can stumble across something that's worth giving your whole life for, and it can change everything. So that's one side of the coin, that there's this treasure in a field. There's a second side of the coin, and the second side is interesting because it's talking about this fine pearl. Like, now, let me just read it here. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. At first glance, we go, a pearl, okay. Like, I can get that down the street. It's going to cost me maybe a hundred bucks for a nice one or two. We'll see. But you have to remember, pearls started becoming industrialized in the 20th century, right, out of Japan. And so, before that, pearls were considered of the utmost and most highest value to ever attain. That if you really wanted to have something really valuable, you wanted to have pearls. And it was a craze within the Egyptian empire, within the Roman empire as well. And it hit its zenith in the Roman empire in 100 BC in that range. Uh, there's, uh, there's a historian called Pliny, and Pliny uh, was the first gemologist. He lived uh, in the first century AD, Roman. And so he would, he would talk about what was happening at that time in history. And as a gemologist, he was the first to start equating worth in, in, in numbers to like jewelry, to gold, to whatever it may be. And he estimates that one pearl, a big pearl, but we would say no more than maybe a, um, a half an inch, an inch diameter, one pearl um, could be worth just over a thousand ounces of silver, which in modern terms, modern numbers, is a little bit over four, four million dollars. One pearl. One pearl could be worth four million dollars within this time in history. There's a story of Cleopatra, Egyptian, and Mark Anthony, Greco, eventually Roman, of 
as they were kind of courting, uh, that they had a bet and a wager who could throw the most expensive and lavish dinner. So Mark Anthony shows up, sits down at the table, and all the plates are empty, all the cups are empty. And then Cleopatra looks at him, brings a, a servant to come up, she crushes a pearl, mixes it with her water, and drinks it. And Mark Anthony just goes, you win. <laughs> the craze was so big within Rome, Roman women of high privilege would, um, would upholster their couches and chairs with pearls. They would encrust their gowns so much with pearls, they'd, they'd be walking on pearls in their hymns. It was a lavish, decadent world that Jesus was living in, one that we have actually a hard time touching at times when you think of this, those kind of elite people living those ways. Then again, maybe not. So you have these people who had all this access to all this amazing riches, and the narrative as Rome spread throughout the world was pretty simple. Find a pearl, have your life changed. All it takes is one pearl to change your life. All it takes is one moment for you to leverage everything for and go get it, and if you get it, everything can be different for you. So we have this merchant who realizes something, if I get one pearl, just one pearl, I can change my life. Things can, can now be better. Things can now be different. It really adds to the story. So we have this merchant who now says, I must go and find the thing that I don't have. And Jesus is telling His disciples, I'm handing you the chance to have a pearl. This pearl, this kingdom of heaven, this thing has the chance to completely change your whole reality. Everything that you thought was true actually and that was going to kill you, destroy you, that you had to live by, those bad realities and those bad dreams can now become untrue. But you're going to have to go search for it. And here's the word that's really interesting, interesting in this passage, search. It's this word, zeteo. And zeteo simply means to search with desire. Desire. Now let's take a, a pause. I went for it in fifth grade. I had a desire. I went for it and put myself out there. What's your narrative? Where have you tried to go for it? You live with desire. You live with a sense that maybe, just maybe, things can happen if I step out and put myself out there. And yet you've been crushed time and again. Those old narratives of shame can stick with us for a long time, guys. That trauma, that PTSD in the limbic brain, right, that part of your brain that feels like it's actually in your chest, those kind of moments where you're thinking like, why am I so unwilling to do something that makes so much sense in so many ways? It's because there's part of you in your past that you've been unwilling to deal with, maybe. There's a part of you that just kind of keeps holding yourself back. And Jesus is saying to His followers, I don't want you to miss out on the thing that has potential to change everything, the thing that has potential to, like, set you up for the life that you've always dreamed of having. And I'm not trying to go Joel Osteen on you here. Okay, trust me. 
I'm just trying to give you what Jesus is talking about. Jesus seems to think that the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing in this world, that if you let it galvanize you, that it's worth reordering all your priorities and leveraging what you have. It's willing to give up the thing you think that's going to be so sure and comfortable for you and go for the thing that's unknown, but man, you just got to go get it. So the two parables, same coin, different sides. One is you stumble into these moments. What do you do with it? The other is you know you just have to go for it. And what's it going to cost you? And that's the key word, cost. Because to go for the kingdom costs something. Now, I want us to just reflect on that for a minute. I want us to reflect on that for a minute, both individually and then as a body. Now, first, just remember, the kingdom of God is His reign through Jesus Christ here and now. And what did Jesus in His reign time and again say that He's here to do? Give life and it more abundant. And He's not talking about Beulah land singing hymns by and by, all right? If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Like, He's actually saying, like, I want you to have eternal life here now. Matter of fact, a Jewish person at that time in history didn't think of terms of getting out of this world to heaven. That wasn't even a concept for them. That was more nuanced in the last few hundred years. For an ancient Near Eastern person, they believed God wanted them to have life here and now, that His reign, if expanded throughout the world, could like bring forth mercy and justice and dignity and life and health and hope. They believed the world could flourish if if they could just live in this actualized reality. But you needed a Messiah. You needed someone brave enough, anointed enough to come into space and time and upend the world's values and show what's really hidden underneath all those smoke screens in the world, in fields that you have to go search for, pearls that are worth more than you ever could, have, ever could imagine. St. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century um, Dominican um, priest, very well known, said, the kingdom of heaven is therefore compared to things of earth, that the mind may rise from things familiar to things unknown, and may learn to love the unknown. Listen, I know this sounds mystical, but listen, Jesus is a mystic in so many ways. He's less interested in all the concrete things that you feel like you've got to like stake your life upon, the things you can hold on to, the materials. He's way more interested in you going for something that, man, it feels kind of crazy, kind of risky, kind of unknown. But something in your core, your heart, tells you that you are meant for more. You're meant to live for more than just what you can control with your hands than the right figure of a salary of a job, the right house in the right setting, with the right friends and the right amount of kids. Those things are fine and good, but those are more values of America than they are the kingdom of heaven. And we have to question sometimes which values get put at the front end of our life. See, to step into desire means you got to risk something. You have to give up something to go get the thing you don't have. So here's the question for us individually. What's holding you back? 
what are you scared of that's going to happen or not happen if you actually go for it? I mean, go for it with the kingdom of heaven. Are you afraid that if you go for it in relationships, and I don't mean trying to get somebody like evangelized and saved, I mean like actually trying to bring some hope and life to a person because of your, through your kindness and your love and your generosity. It's not your job to get anybody saved. We got the Holy Spirit for that. He doesn't need you. But here's what he does need, like you like to step into moments and be generous and benevolent and loving and kind, gracious, forgiving, regardless if it always happens for you first. So where in your past have you found that you learned a lesson, don't do that, because people will let you down? Or where in your past have you put yourself out there for God? God, I need you, I believe in you, and then you're left in those moments simply saying, where are you? Like, what's holding you back? I would say for a lot of us, it's the pain of the past and the fear of the future. That the pain of the past is very real, and the fear of the future is very scary. But the kingdom of heaven is always asking us to step out of simply the pain of the past and into the fear of the future. And it's saying the pain can't hold us back, but it's still worth recognizing. And the fear can't slow us down, but it is worth being wise around it. So what is your thing? Is it hurt? Is it fear? What's the thing that keeps you from saying, I've got to go get this life, the life that I know that I'm meant to have, but I've also got to give up the life that I have to go get it? Jim Elliott, I remember reading this when I was in college. It became the mission, the motto to my life, because I remember I had this moment where I just had to go for it. And Jim Elliott, a, a missionary to, um, to natives within Ecuador, he said, it's in your bulletin, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. Do you ever feel like you're trying to hold on to something in your life and you know it's just going to evaporate at some point in time? It's that relationship, that person you're just trying to control to get them to act the way that you want like, i.e. marriage, right? Like, I just, I got to get you to act and do what I want. I need to use enough shame and techniques, right, to get you to change. Is it that job that you're so convinced, if you just get this job, then things work out for you. But you got that job, and here you are again thinking the same things. Like, what is that thing that you just need to be able to let go of? Because you really can never keep it to gain the thing that you actually could never lose even if you tried? I think that's a big question for us individually in this room, to step into more. But here's the second part I would say, a question to us corporately. What does it mean for us to step into desire as a church? We've been in steam here uh, for a little over four years. We moved here in 2014 uh, out of a nightclub bar venue, uh, Minglewood Hall. We wanted to grow up, right? Like, let's not subject our children to uh, last night's fluids uh, in the children's space, right, that happened at Minglewood Hall. That's a real thing. So let's, like, grow up a little bit. We came to Steam with high hopes, felt like it was at a good location, 
right? Like you could kind of be at the corner and, and meeting point of Midtown uh, in East Memphis. Uh, and we actually found all these amazing things happening in this space. I, I know the, for a lot of people who have been serving at Christ City, there's a running joke of, man, I am so done with this space. Let's just peace out and steal some chairs, right? Like, let's just, let's just get out of here. Um, I don't think anybody said the steal the chairs part, so please don't do that. So, but like, you know, because the, the air conditioner works one Sunday, it doesn't the next. You know, the lights are blinding up here. Um, it's just been kind of an awkward space to make, to make warm. Um, and yet, as we're reflecting upon that this morning in prayer, I mean, we've had all these people baptized on the stage at this church. We've had all these babies dedicated. We've had some very moving Sundays of worship together. We've had some really inspiring ways to go about life. We hit our height of nickels and noses. How many people are giving and how many people are showing up? Good southern numbers for the church, right? Like we, we hit those numbers. And yet, early last year, 2017, we also hit our lowest point. The kind of point that makes you go, can this church exist in two or three months? And yet, here we are. Here we are, a church that's willing to, let's go for 15, instead, let's do 35,000 to pour into a building. A church that started reevaluating what health and growth is, that it's not through nickels and noses, it's through lives that are inspired and changed and willing to go get theirs because they know something. Like, it doesn't matter about the numbers. What it matters is about the life you get. If you get a life, others will want it. That we move from being like the premier hipster speakeasy church of Midtown to now a place where people can belong and get to know God. A lot of beautiful changes have happened in this building. And yet here we are now, having to step into more. Step into a future that, that says maybe we can even bring more flourishing and more of the kingdom of heaven to Midtown. A future that says, yeah, it's going to cost you more. Like, listen, any of you in this room that have done your own personal health to grow, here's what you know. It costs a lot. Money, emotional equity, and time, boundaries, learning how to live life differently. There are people in this room that have learned to actually deal with addiction, not by trying to rub some Bible verses on them, but actually go get the help they need in recovery. There are people in this room that are going, I think God is going to step out and lead in greater capacities. I think there are ideas in me that could actually bring change to the city. It's inspiring and beautiful. But it's going to cost us something, guys. It's going to cost us a lot to keep stepping into all that God has for us. One of the things, though, that I believe that's going to be a part of this time that's going to cost us as we go into Central Church is I think that we're actually going to find, in the midst of going for it, a lot more rest. I know that sounds weird to say it that way. But at a members meeting, we were talking about this a few months ago, stepping into Central, this working out. And um, Stacy Martin, who is on the Women's Council, she had just mentioned how she really believed that this was going to be a time of peace and rest. 
This church has battled and worked through so much. And I want you to know something. Going for it doesn't have to mean weariness. It doesn't have to mean that you're always weary and beat down. Going for it could simply mean that you're coming to Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, and you're saying, I want more of your life. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. It could mean you're recovering your life. Going for it could mean that we live a hermeneutic, a life in Midtown that people see because we're going for Sermon on the Mount ways and ethics, and they're going, that's so inspiring. And then I think there's more refreshment to bring. And so I'd encourage us all, consider, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for us to step into more? And for all of you at this church, in this setting, especially I want to honor a particular group of people, the Setup Teardown crew, right? Our Setup and Teardown crew for seven years has been getting up early on Sunday mornings, whether led by Drew or Logan, and has been pouring themselves out here showing up, being away from their families early maybe, staying late afterwards. And I'm excited to know that you no longer have to do that. There's no more setting but tearing down, rest. I also want you to know that there's more places to volunteer now during regular church normal hours. It's called Children's Christ City Kids and Parking Detail. I'm excited to be able to see what this church is going to find, what kind of pearls it'll stumble, it'll go after, and what kind of treasure it'll stumble into. But here's what it takes, a willingness to keep living in pain and a willingness to keep facing fears. Listen, there will be more high moments for this church and more low moments for this church. But the only thing that ever keeps us consistent throughout is the kingdom of heaven is a Messiah at the middle of it all that says, I'm worth coming after and I'm worth following. Will you let yourself be galvanized by me? Will you let yourself reorder everything in your life? And will you liquidate what you have to get the thing you don't? So we're now going to move into a time of communion. We're going to sing, take communion. We're going to recognize God's goodness to us as a congregation here, the things that we've picked up along the way. And we're also going to recognize that next Sunday we get to step into a new space. It's beautiful, it's old, that we've enjoyed worshiping there so many times before. It's going to be a new home. And we're going to keep this in mind that as we come and take communion, that whether you're stumbling into it or stepping into it, desire is what God is wanting us to have. Desire for more of you, desire for more of others, even outside this room, desire for Him. Let's pray. Father, as we now um, come before Your table, I pray that You would reawaken in us the parts of our lives where maybe we've just considered it's not worth touching that anymore. The narrative of shame was just, shame was just too much. And we're just going to be too hurt, and it's going to be too scary to step into more. But Jesus, you came and you said that you, you want to give us life in it more abundant. And this table represents that, life in your abundance. So whether we found ourselves stumbling into moments, and we know that maybe we just need to go for it, 
or whether we're convinced that this right here is worth me going after and then liquidating what I got because I know something, I can't lose this. So we love you. We thank you. We thank you for what you've been doing in this church for years, and we thank you for what we're now getting to enter into and step into. And Lord, I pray that our desire will be strong, fervent, because we see that your desire for us is very strong. In your name we pray. Amen.